As mentioned earlier, we want to spend a, a moment in our service today just offering a prayer uh, on behalf of our country, on behalf of this special day in the life of America. So would you join me in praying? Father, as we consider the truths of which we have sang about today, we also want to offer a prayer of gratitude. We realize that uh, as we have gathered today, as we do every Sunday, that there are brothers and sisters all throughout the world who've done these same things. They've worshiped, they've joined together in communion, they've heard your word proclaimed, but yet they've had to do it in the cover of darkness for fear of persecution and even death. So Father, help us not to be flippant about the opportunities we have, about the freedoms that we do uh, get to enjoy here in America. And God, help us to take uh, these opportunities, these resources that you have blessed us with to do good in the world, to serve not just those around uh, our church here in Indiana or even in America, but all throughout the globe. Help us to spread the light of Jesus Christ to everyone who is yet to hear. God, we also read in Scripture that we're encouraged to pray for those who lead in our governments. And so today we, we pause and we pray for our leaders on the national level. We pray for our president, for our senators, for our representatives, for our Supreme Court justices as they make decisions that impact so many people. Give them wisdom and discernment. God, may their choices bring honor to you. May they be pleasing to you. And God, for our, our state leaders and our local leaders, even all the way down to uh, school board members and so many that have uh, the ability to influence and the ability uh, to lead, God, give them wisdom. Give them patience and perseverance. May more people within the church continue to strive and rise to lead in these areas of the public square so that they can uh, make decisions that, again, bring honor and glory to you. And God, we, we also think of our servicemen and women who are both currently serving and who have served. We pray a blessing upon them and ask for safety. We pray a blessing upon their family as these times can be difficult as they're separated from their loved ones. And God, as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, we submit and recognize that true freedom, freedom from our sin, Freedom from the darkness in our own hearts is truly found in Jesus Christ. Through his blood have we been made clean and fresh and new, and we give thanks. We lift all of these things and all of these prayers up to you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you, worship team, for leading us in worship this morning. My goodness, I... I appreciated that time just to <clears throat> focus on God and give him the glory and honor that he deserves. So uh, can I just say a special welcome? I'm glad that you're with us today. Happy 4th of July today. Happy Independence Day. Some of you are here in the room, and I'm, I'm looking at your smiling faces. And some of you are joining us online. I know it's a big weekend to travel and get out and about. And uh, some of you are joining us that way, and I'm so grateful that you're with us as well. So... Uh, it's been a, a fun weekend. I, I hope that you, uh, you know, you get to blow some stuff up 
and I hope that you get to eat as much fry food as you deem appropriate. Uh, all that unhealthy stuff, the fair food, I hope you thoroughly enjoy that. I've been doing that. Uh, so Dawn and I, I got to go to Connor Prairie to Symphony on the Prairie with some friends on Friday night, and it was so much fun. You know, we're journeying through this uh, series, Mountains and Valleys, and we've been saying, listen, we're, we're trying to level things out, right? There's some mountaintop experiences, and we've been through some valley stuff, especially over the last year and a half. And as things are kind of getting back to normal, we're seeking to live a level life and just kind of let things level out a bit. I sure felt that on Friday night at Symphony on the Prairie. First of all, law of averages, I'm guessing some of you had to be there. It was a giant crowd. I snapped this photograph just looking out at a sea of people, and it felt it felt normal. It felt almost like pre-pandemic kind of vibe. It was so much fun. Beautiful sunset and just a beautiful evening. And, and there were some fireworks later. Things went boom up in the sky. And then there was oohs and ahs. And that was awesome. There was a moment when, actually there were several moments in that service, when a serviceman dressed up in like period garb. Of course, Connor Prairie is a living history museum. And so there are people from different eras, soldiers that had served in our country dressed up uh, from those eras. And the, the flag, of course, of our country. And I was feeling all the patriotic feels and was feeling that again yesterday during the day. And then last night, I went to sleep. Uh, it's my habit on Saturday night to go to bed just a little bit early because I've got a gig on Sunday morning I get up early for. Uh, I typically set my alarm clock for about 4.30 in the morning on Sunday morning, and I go to bed then about 8.30. And listen, uh, you know, Saturday night, even this time of year especially, the sun is still up, and I get it at Saturday night. My neighbors are still partying, and that's great. Um, but last night I laid down and drew the blinds. And I, you know, as I was kind of laying down, I heard boom, boom. And then, uh, I don't know, an hour later, dusk, I heard boom, 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 which, you know, of course, I, I, I was, this is how it works. And I knew that. I was, I was all geared up for that. And then, uh, you know, an hour later, it was boom, 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 boom. Perhaps you heard some of those in your neighborhood as well. And then, I don't know, uh, midnight, boom, boom. Okay, here we go. 2 a.m., I think I heard a couple of Boom, boom. I, I set my alarm, I told you, for 4.30. So I, I don't know if it was maybe a little before that or a little bit after that. There was boom. And uh, I kind of did one of these things. And I was trying to decide, is that uh, somebody who is still partying from the night before? Or is that getting up and greeting the pre-sunrise and getting 4th of July celebrations off with a bang and doing it right? I don't know. But i got to be honest with you, as I was laying there, I was thinking, oh, man, I'm not, I'm not sure I'm loving this. I'm not sure I was feeling all the warm fuzzies uh, in that. Some of you with toddlers or maybe some of you with pets that freak out, maybe you get that as well. Let me ask you this question. As we dive into our topic today, we're talking about crazy love. That's the title of today's sermon. I would invite you right now to think about who, who are you angry with? Who are you maybe just a little bit ticked off at? Can you picture them? Maybe you can't think of anybody right now. Maybe you have to go back to your childhood to think about this, the playground bully, or maybe that mean girl at school. Picture them right now in your mind's eye. I did that this past week, and even thinking about those folks, I felt, I felt my blood start to stir just a little bit. All these years later, crazy love, as we begin, think about somebody who's an enemy to you. 
That is, somebody who's harmed or maybe hurt you or maybe hurt those who you love, who seems threatening. Maybe they oppose you. Maybe it's just that they dislike you and that bothers you. Now, this might be somebody that's close to you. It might even be a family member. You might not technically classify them as an enemy, but this message today, I think, still applies. My prayer this morning, as we look at this passage, as we continue to march through the Sermon on the Mount, remember inside we're looking at Sermon on the Mount, outside worship on the lawn, we're looking at the Sermon on the Plain. I believe it's the same sermon, same location. Today, our prayer is that God will work in us a deep love, even, even for our enemies or those we're frustrated with. Jesus talks about this. If you want to go there with me, I'm in Matthew chapter 5. Go there in your Bible or maybe open up the Venture app and you can follow in the notes there. He's preaching in this greatest sermon ever preached. Matthew 5, beginning with verse 43. He says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, we should pause right there before we read any further and simply ask the question. It's an important question. Where was this said? It seems like Jesus is quoting somebody in that. You have heard that it's said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Well, where does it say that? Listen, I, I want to blow your mind here. There's three time spaces that this happens. Think like a, the matrix here. We're going to take a deep dive. Three layers of time where this is said. First of all, we're hearing it right here. Jesus speaks even through the Bible. The Bible is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's meant to cut and divide. And even now, 2,000 years later, as we study this incredible sermon, Jesus speaks through that today. That's the first layer. Second layer was when he actually said these words on a hillside that was also a level plain. First century, perhaps you remember the map if you've been here over previous weeks. This summer we've been looking at the Sea of Galilee, so your hand is the map. Right here is the location I would put Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Plain. Here on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus is speaking primarily to a Jewish audience. And there are other people that are called Gentiles. The others, they live on this side of the lake. And Jesus has been calling them in this sermon, get out of your bubble just a bit. This north side of the Sea of Galilee, this Jewish neighborhood, he's calling, he's saying, I want you to be salt and light even to the other side of the lake. That's the second layer of the audience. Now, you've got to go backwards in time to grab the first half of this phrase. You've got to go all the way back to Leviticus chapter 19, and this is what it says. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And he's speaking to the nation of Israel on the edge of the promised land here. He's saying, love your neighbor. Okay, so that's, that's the first half of this phrase that Jesus used. Love your neighbor and uh, hate your enemy. You've heard it said. But where's the second half? Where does it say hate your enemy? Well, this is an inference here. By the time Jesus comes on the scene in the first century, well-meaning faith teachers had created this colloquial saying, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Likely from passages in the Old Testament, like Psalm 139, which says, I do, or do I not, this is David speaking, he's asking the question, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor, I love that word, those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them as my enemies. Now, it's important to remember, David is the shepherd boy who grows up to be king, but he has this whole, like, 
uh, career in the middle of that, where he's like a general of armies. And his whole life's calling during that era is to go after God's enemies. He calls them the Philistines. And he's using some very strong language here. And skip ahead to about a thousand years later, first century. You've got Jewish leaders and teachers who are saying, listen, if that was good enough for David, well, that works for me. And we'll explore a little more of what's behind that here in just a moment. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, you have heard it said, Jesus said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, this first century colloquial saying. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. And then he continues in this incredible sermon. He, God, causes his son to rise on the evil So go back to our map. The sun actually rises first, east side of the Sea of Galilee. He causes his sun to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, those who live on this side of the lake. If you love those who love you, well, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers up here in the bubble that you live in, What are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans, the folks that live on this side of the lake, do they not do that as well? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Before we go any further, could we simply bow our heads, close our eyes, and invite God to speak through those words that he spoke then today? Would you pray? God, we we thank you for your teaching. We thank you for your words. Jesus, I thank you that on a hillside that was also a plateau 2,000 years ago, you spoke truth, and it changed the world. Crazy love demonstrated by your first followers literally changed the world. May these life-giving words today challenge us. May they move us to action. Lord, we open our hearts to receive, our ears to hear, and we pray that you move our hands and our feet toward action today. May you change the world, our little corner of the world that you've placed us in as we seek to put this into action today. And it's in your name, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we're thinking patriotic thoughts this morning, if you're taking notes, you might want to write this down. King Jesus came to set up a radical, let's call it crazy love kind of kingdom. And this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain, as he's speaking, as he's looking out across the crowd, this group of people who lived on this side of the lake, this was his inaugural address. He came to set up a crazy love kind of kingdom. And the question we have to ask today is, how can we practice the radical love of Jesus' kingdom? In this passage, Jesus gives believers the highest standard one can aim at, being like God. He says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Perfect? Really? The word perfect can also be translated mature. Perfect can mean mature. It has to do with an end, an aim, a goal, or a purpose. In the context, uh, this goal is to love like God. In fact, Jesus says that when we love our enemies, we show ourselves to be children of God, mature children 
and we actually look like him. In this part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus continues to teach the, uh, the believer's righteousness, how it must, it must surpass even that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. He, he's basically been looking at five misinterpretations of the law that those leaders in the first century had kind of misapplied. And he's going after them. And he's saying, listen, we've got to take those standards that have been lowered and we have to raise them back up to God's standards. He said, you've heard it said, do not murder, but I tell you. And then he says, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery, ah, but I tell you. You've heard it said, do not divorce, I tell you this. You've heard it said, don't take an oath, I tell you. How about eye for an eye, oh my goodness. I'm going to invite you to turn the other cheek. We talked about that just a couple of weeks ago. This is the sixth and the final in this list where Jesus discusses love for our enemies. True salvation changes a person's life. And it is most clearly seen in the radical way that a believer, you and I, how we put love on display. There should be a supernatural love in the life of a believer. And this distinguishes us from the rest of the world. Remember, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, if you only greet your brothers... Those people who are living up here that are just like you. If you only say hello to them, what more do you do? Even the Gentiles, those living over here, well, they do the same thing, don't they? Christians should be marked by more. They should have a radical love. Let's call it a crazy love. Let's go back to the map. Jesus, remember, is preaching to the choir. Why? Because the choir needs moved to action. He's saying, I want you to cross the lake. I want you to go to the other side of your neighborhood because there's people over there. You need to display crazy love to them because they need to see Jesus in you. Today I want to share with you five principles about this radical love, this crazy love that Jesus is calling into. And as we consider these, can we simply ask ourselves, is the crazy love of the kingdom, is it visible in my life? When I row across the, the, the lake, when I walk across the street in my neighborhood, when I go around the corner in the cubicle farm that I work in in my office, do people who don't know Jesus, do they see him on display in my life? Here's the first principle. If you're taking notes, write this one down. Crazy love risks toward all people. This would have been revolutionary to this group of Christians here on the north side of the lake. He said in Matthew chapter 5, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Here's an important question that we have to ask is, how did the Jews interpret love your neighbor? Perhaps you've read the story in Luke chapter 10. They were wrestling with the question, who is my neighbor? A guy came to him and asked Jesus this question as if it wasn't obvious. And Jesus answered that question, well, this is who your neighbor is. A guy's walking down the road, the road to Adomim. It's from Jericho to Jerusalem. It's the story of the good Samaritan. Here's the thing. The Jewish people, those living up on this side of the lake, they hated the Samaritans. They disliked the Samaritans. They were ideologically different than them. They viewed the world through a different lens than them and the Jewish folks. They were not fans of the Samaritans. It's so interesting to me that Jesus chooses a Samaritan to be the hero in that story. Perhaps you remember that story. The supposed heroes, they walk right past the man in distress, but the Samaritan, 
He does the Jesus thing. And Jesus says, well, who's the, Samaritan? who's the neighbor? Well, the one who helped the man. Ah, well, you, you go and do likewise. Be a good Samaritan. They didn't like Samaritans. How did they come to the conclusion that loving their neighbor only referred to those folks who were living near them? How did the Jewish people in the first century think that way? Because, listen, if you go back to Leviticus chapter 19, we just looked at that passage where the Jews were called to love their neighbor. It literally begins with this. Speak to the whole congregation of the Israelites. Moses is writing to the Jewish nation, and so in the first century, they're going backwards, and they're saying, well, let's go ahead and kind of pull that in then. This is really applying just to us. We're just called to love those who we're like, and they're like us. Leviticus chapter 19, though, if you look a little bit further, just a few verses after that, verse 2, down in verse 33, look what it says. When a foreigner resides with you in your land, literally, just the other side of the lake, these people are foreigners. The region of the Decapolis, this part, this side of the lake, this is a foreign land to these folks. When a foreigner resides in your land, and it's very possible in that moment, Jesus just points across the lake. When a foreigner resides with you in your land, you must not oppress him. The foreigner who resides with you must be to you like a native citizen among you. So you must love him as yourself. This is Old Testament. Because you were foreigners in the land of Egypt, you remember what it's like to feel like that. I'm the Lord, your God. It's an omission, a choice omission by the religious leaders that they're not referring to these verses as well. But among Jews in Jesus' day, those that are his original audience living up on this side of the lake, this would have been a common expression. Perhaps you've heard of Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls. This was a sect in the first century. They coined a phrase. It was, love the brother, hate the outsider. Love the brother, hate the outsider. This would have been a very common phrase in Jesus' day. The Jews believed it was their duty to love fellow Israelites, and it was also their duty to hate outsiders. That was the case in the first century. Is it that way today? I heard it said years ago that Sunday morning is the most segregated day of the week. Like attracts like. Racial like attracts like. Socioeconomic, like, attracts like. And it's human nature, I get it. It's not bad together with people that are like you, but when we do it and we exclude those who are not like us, we're violating this teaching on this side of the Sea of Galilee 2,000 years ago. Racism and partiality that flood into our churches, this is not the Jesus way. Last week we talked about the fruit of the Spirit. And before that same passage in Galatians chapter 5, Paul describes, okay, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. But there's a list right before that. Look at this list. It includes idolatry, sorcery, hostility, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish rivalries, dissensions, racial dissensions socioeconomic factions. This is not the fruit of the Spirit. This is the opposite. Here's the deal. Human nature has a nasty habit of showing itself 
It just does. But our job is to war against that. Our job is to resist that. It's human nature. You even see it in the Bible. Jesus preaches his message. But you only have to get as far as the sixth chapter of Acts, and already you see racial divisions where the Grecian widows are being neglected in distribution of the food. Food is going to the Jewish widows, not the Grecian widows, and so the church has to step in and, and create a leadership role to, this isn't good, let's fix this, let's go after this. You skip ahead to James chapter 2, the Jewish Christians there, they're favoring the wealthy over the poor. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is leaving no room for racism. He's leaving no room for partiality. There's no second-class citizen in Jesus' kingdom. We should be characterized by a radical love for all. Here's an important question. If Jesus were to teach the parable of the Good Samaritan today, who would he make the hero of the story? I don't know. Think about who you know who is marginalized. Who do you know or what people group can you think of that might be oppressed? Marginalized. I think if Jesus were telling you that story today, he might pick that person and make them the hero of his story. So here's the question. Those of us who are living on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, those of us who are in, how do we view those on the outside? Where are our hearts on that? Those maybe who are a different race or ethnicity or a different socioeconomic status, do you treat them differently than those who are like you? Kingdom citizens should be radically different than the racist and the divided world that we live in. Are you truly loving your neighbor, including people who are different from you? Here's the second principle. If you're taking notes, write this one down. Crazy love is bold, even toward enemies. Matthew chapter 5, verse 44 says, But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. This was a difficult teaching in Jesus' day. This original audience here on the north side of the lake, this would have been a tough pill for them to swallow. And I would submit to you it's still a difficult teaching for us to absorb as well. Why? Because it seems like a bad ROI. It's a bad return on investment to exchange good for harm that's been done toward you. Why in the world did the religious leaders conclude that the Jews should hate their enemies? Well, because they took some stuff. And they took the Old Testament and they, they extrapolated a bit. You know, Jesus' teaching to love one's neighbor, it's applied even to somebody's enemies. In fact, this had been taught, though, throughout the entire Jewish law. Consider these following verses. This is Exodus chapter 23. If you encounter your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, you must by all means Give it back to him. Return it to him. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you has fallen under its load, you must not ignore him, but be sure to help him with it. Skip ahead just a little ways to Proverbs chapter 25. Look at this. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to eat, to drink. For you will heap coals of fire on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Kill him with kindness. So how in the world did the religious leaders in the first century come to the conclusion that the Jews should hate their enemies with verses like that staring them in the face? Well, it's not hard to understand. The leaders had considered how the Lord had commanded at the very beginning when you go into the promised land to wipe out all the Canaanites, not sparing any of them. And they applied this to enemies in general. 
Remember, we looked at the Psalm of David, Psalm 139. He says, your enemies, God, I count them as my enemies. Remember, David is a, um, he's a leader of a military campaign. Well, in the first century, these Jews that are living on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, they are living under an occupation of a, a foreign army. The Romans, this city of the cities of the Decapolis over here, these are Roman people and Greek-speaking people, and they felt themselves, in militarily speaking, in opposition to them. If we go back to this map, the Jews are literally surrounded by Roman people. Actually, not just the cities of the Decapolis over here, but to the north you've got Caesarea Philippi where they're literally worshiping the emperor. They're worshiping a living dude. If you go over this section, just, just a little bit ways over here, the, the Nazareth Ridge where Jesus is raised as a child in the city of Nazareth, the little town of Nazareth. Three miles walk from there, about an hour's walk, is a city called Sephoris. I've been there. And it's gorgeous Roman colonnades and Greek architecture and Actually, in the New Testament, when Jesus' dad, Joseph, is described as a carpenter, probably don't think so much hammer and nails and wood, but think of like stonemason. That word can mean that. It's quite likely that when Jesus was a young man, he was helping his dad actually build out that city of Sephoris. They would leave this Jewish community of Nazareth and probably walk over there and work in that city. And they're surrounded by pagan people. The Jews up here, they're literally surrounded by an occupation army, the Romans. This is a big deal. And it had wandered into their thinking. Ideologically, they viewed themselves as us and then others. On the other side of the lake, all around them, here's the deal, you have enemies. Maybe you think of people who have a different ideological perspective than you. Maybe they vote a different way than you would vote. Maybe their worldview is different than the way you view the world. And it's possible to find somebody who's different than you, others. It's just as simple as rowing across the lake or walking down the street or maybe walking around the cubicle farm in your office complex. Here's the question. How do we show crazy love toward our enemies. How do we do that? Well, Jesus implies that there are two ways here. If you're taking notes, you might want to write this down and think about practical action steps this week. How do you apply this? First of all, kindness. There's the word that's used here in the original language that we, we, uh, we, we translate as love. It's the word agape. It's a Greek word. This is an act of will. It implies acts of kindness. Actually, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, when Paul talks about love, he uses 15 verbs to describe agape. He says love is patient, love is kind, it perseveres, it endures, it keeps no record of wrong. Actually, agape involves attitude, but it's best described by what it does. In fact, the parallel passage of Luke chapter 6, the Sermon on the Plain, Jesus says it this way, love your enemies, do good to those that hate you. Do good. Acts of kindness. Maybe kill them with kindness. Show them kindness. This is the way God loves us. Romans chapter 5 verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us. And that well, while we are still sinners, Jesus died for us. We just celebrated that moment together as a church with communion. 
We must do the same thing to those who wrong us. We must love them by performing acts of kindness to them. Romans chapter 12 says it this way in verse 20. Rather, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For by doing this, you will be heaping burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Colloquially, kill them with kindness. However, it must be noted that by doing acts of kindness to them, your emotional love for them, check this out, it will actually grow. I love what C.S. Lewis said about this. He was a prolific author in the previous century. He commented on loving our neighbor and our enemy, how it's so helpful. He said this, the rule for all of us is perfectly simple. Do not waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. The heart follows acts of kindness. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you're behaving as if you loved someone, you will presently come to love them. If you injure someone you dislike, you will find yourself disliking him more. If you do him a good turn, you will find yourself disliking him less. I love that. That's a great quote. If we show acts of kindness to others, especially our enemies, we will find our love for them is actually growing. Another way to show crazy love to enemies is number two, prayer. Prayer. Are you praying for those people that you're ideologically opposed to? You who live in the bubble on this side of the lake, are you praying for others? Really, are you lifting them up and literally praying for them? Here are some specific prayer points. Number one, ask God to forgive them. In Luke chapter 23, verse 34, on the cross, we see that Jesus was praying. He says, Father, forgive them. These are his enemies, for they don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. And this verb, by the way, this has an ongoing action implied in it. This is probably not a one-and-done prayer. But likely, he prayed that prayer as they were nailing his hands to the cross. Likely, he prayed that forgive them as they spat at him, as they mocked, as they mocked him. He probably prayed forgive them as they pushed the lance up through his side into his heart, the moment we just celebrated through communion a bit ago. He prayed, forgive them. This is a continual prayer. Are you praying? Number two, ask God to restore and heal our relationships with our enemies. It's God's desire for us to live in peace with others. Are you actually praying good things toward those folks? Number three, ask God for their salvation. It's amazing how God can change the human heart. It's hard to stay angry or frustrated or even confused towards somebody who's ideologically different than you if you're actually praying for their salvation. You're praying that God would come into their world and redeem them from their lost and brokenness. Author John Scott said it this way. I love this. Moreover if, moreover, if intercessory prayer is an expression of what love we have, it is a means to increase our love as well. It is impossible to pray for someone without loving them and impossible to go on praying for him without discovering that our love for him grows and matures. We must not, therefore, wait before praying for an enemy until we feel some love for him in our heart. We must begin to pray for him before we are conscious of loving him. And we will find our love break first into bud 
then into blossom. Then from the cost of discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a pastor right before World War II in Nazi Germany, he, he, he talks about this kind of prayer for forgiveness. He says this, through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy, we stand by his side and plead for him to God. Think about what that would have looked like for a man who died in a concentration camp. Are you willing to plead for your enemies in obedience to Jesus' command? This is exactly what he's talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. Are you praying for your enemies? How would that affect them? How would that affect you if you were actually doing that? And are you willing to let go of that root of bitterness that unforgiveness brings? There you go. Crazy love proves us genuine. Matthew chapter 5. So that you will be like your Father in heaven. What did, what did Jesus mean by this? To say you're going to be like God? Well, he's saying that when you love like this, when you love with this crazy love, you demonstrate the truth that you're born again, that, you're, that you've been adopted into God's family. 1 John chapter 4 puts it this way. If anyone says, I love God and yet hates his fellow Christian, he's a liar. Because the one who does not love his fellow Christian whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Does radical love for believers and also your enemies, does it mark your life? This is a big deal. Because here's the thing, our world is desperate, desperate to see Jesus in us. And through us, those of us who are camped out here on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, this group of people over here, they're desperate to see, they need to see Jesus through us. There's a recent Barna survey that just came out. I mean, like, this stands up post-pandemic, actually. This is fresh, hot off the presses. And it's asking the question, who's thinking what about local churches? There's a deep dive that could be done here. But I would point your attention here. People who belong to the church, they're practicing Christians. Their view, maybe they're not coming to church right now, but their view toward the church is 80% favorable. 80%. Makes sense, right? That's, that's us. Yeah. We like us. But over here, those who are living on this side of the lake, practicing non-Christians, 21% have a favorable or positive view toward the church. 21%. That's one in five. We used to think if, you know, you're going to try to connect with an unchurched person in your life, you might be starting maybe on a 10-point scale somewhere around three or maybe even zero. But if this research is true, and I believe it is, it shows that you're probably actually starting from a minus five or a minus eight. But here's the deal. I believe you can still bridge that gap. And it's happened. I don't know if you're feeling right now, as you look around the world, you say, oh my goodness, what's the world going toward? People have felt like that other times in history as well, though. Let's go back to our map. I, I told you that um, Jesus is preaching his message right here on this side of the Sea of Galilee. At the base of that mountainside that's also a plateau, is a little town called Magdala. If you were here the first week of this series, we talked about how it was a commercial fishing village and they would salt fish, ship it all over the world. You're supposed to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. 
other side of the lake, of course, is where the others live. Some of those others, well, their culture, just about 40 years after this original sermon, the Romans came, the uh, general Titus, and they destroyed Magdala and a whole bunch of other places in that area, and also Jerusalem, it got destroyed. And then a funny thing happened. Christians started loving with radical love, crazy love from under, power under, not power over. And you skip ahead about 200 years in human history. The Roman Empire becomes Christian. That crazy love literally transforms the landscape of the world. I believe that's powerful and possible even today. You skip ahead another 100 years and you've got a guy named Telemachus. Hold on to that thought. I'm going to come back to him in just a second. But real quick, let's complete our outline. Here's the fourth crazy love principle. No, here you go. Crazy love will be rewarded by God. Rewarded by God. He promises that. Actually, a little bit later in the Sermon on the Mount, let's skip the, the, the first verse here. Let's go to Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, which says this. Don't store up for yourself treasures on earth. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. If you love like this, this crazy love, huh, you're actually going to get rewarded in heaven for this. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul puts it this way. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each builder's work will be plainly seen for the day, heaven, will make it clear because it will be revealed by fire. Are you doing your acts of love before men to be seen by them? Well, then you get rewarded for that, Jesus says, this side of heaven. But if you do it in secret, crazy, radical love that can transform a culture, Oh, you get rewarded for that in heaven. Agape love. Here's the question. Will your love be rewarded one of these days in heaven? Here's the last Sermon on the Mount. Crazy love principle. If you're taking notes, write this down. Crazy love should look different if you know Jesus. It should look different. Matthew chapter 5. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Even the tax collectors do the same, don't they? Seems like Jesus has it in for tax collectors. Why? Well, he doesn't. He's just using them as an illustration. Say, listen, human love, everybody living around the lake, even tax collectors, we love to get. That's human nature. The tax collector was synonymous with being a crook. Like this is the original 1%. And Jews hated tax collectors because they were employed by their enemies, the folks living on this side of the lake, the pagan Romans. But here's the deal. He says, everybody loves like that. I'm calling you to love better, to love more. Jesus calls us to be salt and light of the world, and that's demonstrated through our radical love. Arthur Kent Hughes put it this way. He said, the question we must ask is, is there a more in my love? Is there something about my love that cannot be explained in natural terms? Is there something special and unique about my love to others that is not present in the life of the unbeliever, those living on this side of the lake? These are important questions because if there is not a more to our love, if we love only those with whom we have something in common and who treat us well, is there nothing more than that? If there's nothing more than that, we're perhaps not Christians at all. Notice, I did not say we must perfectly exhibit the more of this love, but is there even a more? Here's the question. Are you living a life of more? 
a life of radical kingdom love? Is your love natural, just like the tax collectors? Only loving those who are friendly and likable? Or does your love, crazy love, does it distinguish you from the rest of the world? I want to wrap up with this interesting quote. Alfred Plummer said it this way, and I love this. I've been thinking about this all week. To return evil for good, well, this is what the devil does, right? To return good for good, well, this is just human nature. We give to get. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. But to return good for evil, this is divine. And a world that we live in, especially the folks on the other side of the lake, they are desperate to see Jesus in us and through us. This has the power to change the world. Would you stand up with me? We could still bridge that gap that I was talking about a bit earlier. And remember, we talked about the, the, the message here on the north side of the Sea of Galilee and over 200 years, the winsome love, crazy love of a ragtag group of disciples that recruit others to following the way, the Jesus way. Within 200 years, you know, the known world, many of them start to worship and follow Jesus. Skip ahead about 100 years in the story. And you've got a monk named Telemachus. I haven't said that sentence many times. Telemachus. He's at a gladiator game on a weekend, you know, like the 4th of July. The whole crowd is there. Everybody's celebrating the spectacle. This is the gladiator games, ancient Rome. They bring out the lions. They bring out the bears. Some barbarians are torn to pieces. Probably some Christians are torn to pieces. And Telemachus, this, this tears him up. And in an act of, of radical love, he runs from his seat in the bleachers down onto the, the floor, the gladiator games. And he says, stop. This is not the Jesus way. Stop it. They release the hounds. He's killed in front of everybody. And the crowd is shocked. And this act of radical love, crazy love, guess what? History records that as the last gladiator games ever celebrated. Because crazy love, it draws people to Jesus. Would you bow your heads? Would you close your eyes with me? Father, we are getting ready to leave this space and go out into our mission field. And the rest of today, and we're going to gather with family and friends, and we're going to be in spaces, and we're going to do the celebration thing. Lord, as we do, and as we go back to work this week, would you put your crazy love, that radical love, on display in us and through us so that a world that is desperate to see you sees you in us and through us because of you. And we do that as an act of worship for you because we love you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.